Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello and welcome back. In this episode, I was able to sit down with Ray Huft. He is a licensed structural engineer with Simpleengi Engineers, which is located in Berkeley, California. And we talked about the Eagle's Nest Project, which is a custom single family home that will be located in Temecula, California. This house is two stories with a rooftop patio and two wings that form almost like a wishbone shape with one side cantilevering approximately 26 feet. So it was really interesting to talk about this and talk about those initial thoughts, those initial conversations with the owner and kind of how Ray and the team at Simple NG was able to kind of cut down on the depth of structure and come up with creative ways to support this cantilever and still maintain essentially what the client wanted for that look. We also talked about a lot of things pertaining to structural engineering and really just about working in office environments in general. So Ray works remotely. The whole Simple NG team works remotely and they kind of have a novel way of still connecting by going to remote workspaces every so often and working together. So I thought that was really creative and a great way to kind of hybrid the situation of working from home and also working with people. So it was a lot of fun to sit down with Ray. He is very active. He unfortunately hurt his knee, so that's kind of slowing him down, hopefully not for too long. But we just talked about a lot of things within the industry and kind of, you know, one thing that was super interesting, we talked about kind of the worth that you place on yourself and how clients will follow your suit as far as what you bring to the table. So 
that was really interesting. I think a lot of times as structural engineers, we are reactive to what our clients' needs are and maybe don't state our own needs sometimes, which can kind of lead to over-promising and under-delivering. So I thought Ray's insight into kind of what our own worth is was very insightful and helpful in that regard of clear communication with clients and being kind of honest with ourselves and also with our clients as far as what realistic expectations are. So I think you're going to find this very interesting. The house is a piece of art. It is definitely a custom piece of art as we talk about. So you'll have to listen in and see what Ray would give this building as a theme song. So I will just kind of leave that as a little cliffhanger. But anyway, until you hear that, go ahead and enjoy this conversation with Ray. Well, today we have Ray Huft with us. He is with Simple NG Engineers out of Berkeley, California, kind of in the East Bay area. And we are going to talk about the Eagle's Nest Project, which is a single family house that is located in Temecula, California. So Ray, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you sent over some drawings, which is always super fun to kind of dig into a little bit, and then also some renderings for this project. And it is definitely a unique project with, I guess to describe it a little bit, it has you know a couple of wings that jet out and then a second floor for one area, right? And then like seeing these, I feel like the stair core is almost like this elliptical shape mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of... <laughs> curves in the site retaining walls on this as well. So maybe if you want to start off with kind of when were you contacted about this project? Yeah. So like you mentioned, there's some sort of unique pieces for a residential project with this one. And we got in touch with Martis Bagley at Nonfiction Design. And then he was working with Kirill Ostrovsky of of WellMade. And that's kind of the architectural team that got in touch with us. And they, we actually got involved with this one a little later than than we usually do in in most projects because I had initially been you know in contact with another engineer and had kind of started going through preliminary design with them and yeah as, as you mentioned the project is on a hillside in Temecula and it has this big cantilever that juts out and so that design element is pretty complex and they were ending up with this preliminary design that was very beefy and you know big hunks of steel and deep beams that they were kind of, I guess, looking for a second opinion. And so we initially got involved with just running some rough numbers on kind of a a preliminary design just on that cantilever portion and how we could reduce that size and kind of meet their design needs. And from there, that kind of just turned into, okay, this is a good partnership. And so then they brought us on board to fulfill a a full design for the cantilever portion, but also the the remainder of of the house. So yeah, so it was, again, early as far as, you know, being involved in preliminary design and and scope with them. But later, you know, we were not there from the very beginning. We kind of came on board halfway through their their route. So Gotcha. So this cantilever that you're describing, so this is one of the wings and that whole wing is extruded out from kind of the hillside or the mountainside there. What is that dimension? How far does that whole room cantilever out? It's a really cool element like you said there's the the multiple wings of that structure and it's sort of like kind of wishbone shaped where you've got two of the wings protruding 
downwards on the hillside. And, and one of those is just, you know, sitting on grade. But that cantilever one goes out beyond. There's a drop-off where we've got a retaining wall underneath part of it. And so that's kind of where the cantilever begins. And then there's a kind of a D-shaped elevator shaft. But yeah, it protrudes over a, a driveway. So essentially, you kind of come up the hillside on the driveway. And then there's like a little a back entrance where the car can kind of pull underneath the building. So that part is, it's not cantilevering yet, but that's kind of floating above this this passageway for a car. And then beyond that, there's another 26 feet, I believe, of cantilever beyond that elevator shaft where, you know, that portion of the wing just really extends out over as the hillside slopes away below it. So it's, again, as, as far as a residential project goes for a, you know, a single family home, it's a pretty exciting, I, I would say, but a little more unique than than a lot of the projects that we can do where it's, you know, I'm a I'm an engineer, so I want everything to be a, a concrete box essentially. And you know, then the architect is like, we want this cantilever, we want it. The house is called Eagle's Nest. So when you've got a house with a name, I feel like you kind of understand that there's a little bit of artistic creativity at play there. Yes, a little whimsy of some sort, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how did you guys accomplish that then, the cantilever? I mean, it was it was a fun challenge to work with, and we started modeling it and the initial design that they encountered and, and kind of brought to us and said, can we work something a little more, I guess, small, you know, a little a little lighter than this that had these deep, deep steel beams. And so we were trying to reduce those. So what we ended up doing is we kind of continuously tweaked that model to see what we were getting the most bang for our buck. And it's got a roof. It's basically a single story that's extending out, but it's got, you know, the floor beams and then the roof beams also. So we ended up rather than having that kind of all way on the, the floor beams and design, you know, one ultra deep level to, to cantilever out and catch the, the walls and the roof. We had beams at the roof level and beams at the floor level. And so we've got kind of four primary steel beams extending out parallel to the building. Those extend out all together. And then between those, we ended up connecting those essentially with, with steel columns. And so we ended up kind of creating a, a sort of Virendil truss, which is, you kind of see those more on like airport walkways or, or things like that, you know, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, essentially those columns are, are welded to the steel at the roof and the steel at the floor. And then it kind of makes it act all as one composite member rather than, you know, just relying on the wide flange beam. So, so rather than having the beams themselves in flexure, top flange and bottom flange, that roof beam is sort of a top flange and then the floor beam is sort of the bottom flange and you kind of create a uh, built up truss girder kind of kind of thing and so that allowed us to basically cut the the depth of the steel beams in, in half and actually it was really nice working with the architectural team because they were really amenable to can we shift a column two feet over here you know can we shift this doorway can we shift these windows and so we were able to kind of maximize or optimize where those column locations were and if we needed them to be a little thicker. And so it just kind of like that sort of iterative process with them and being able to collaborate and say, all right, here's what you want. Here's what we want. Kind of where can we meet in the middle? And yeah, it, it ended up working out where everybody seems pretty happy. Yeah. Well, and it looks like from the picture, it's still very much a statement piece. So, I mean, that was kind of going to be my next question is kind of how things evolved. But I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit of like, you coming at it from the structural engineering perspective saying, hey, if we do these little tweaks here, it really helps out a lot for us. Does that work for you, architect? So yeah, that's super fascinating. 
Yeah. And, and I think that, as I was mentioning, that sort of collaborating iterative piece is, I mean, it was super helpful because, you know, it's gone back and forth. We, you know, we've had meetings to kind of go through things. So it's not like a huge chunk of design happens and then you have to, to recorrect. It's sort of been hand in hand as we go along. And I think that that's, that's kind of worked on, on both sides where we were able to, I mean, I guess the, the main portion of that cantilever, we were able to cut down by a few feet by putting some some angled kickers underneath the floor beams as well. And then that portion, architecturally, they kind of incorporated that in their design by making a, a sort of curved soffit underneath that the, you know, that the car can drive past. And it looks nice. It looks like it was meant to just be an architectural piece, but it's also, you know, there was some dead space in there that we were able to, to put some kickers in. And yeah, it just kind of is, again, like how can we balance out the structural needs with the architectural? And, and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I think that looks awesome. That swooping piece is like kind of a signature piece too, like the little arch that goes up that you were able to secretly put a little kicker in there. (laughs) Yeah, no, nobody knows. (laughs) Nobody knows. So were you able to keep that 26 foot cantilever length with the kicker and everything? Like, were you able to keep that pretty much where they wanted it to be architecturally or did that have to come in? It came in a foot or two. Okay. It hasn't moved as much. Like I said, as a, as a structural engineer, you know, I kind of want everything to be stout and stable. And so, you know, initially when they proposed it to us, seeing that, you know, that big cantilever element, my first instinct was, all right, well, maybe we'll have to take that one back a bit, you know, and then beneficial piece was that they were really flexible on the kind of the, the depth of the floor. And I know that I, I mentioned that the initial, you know, the initial beams were deeper than they than they would like to see but within that we were able to to get it to a reasonable size and then we've got tji floor joists running perpendicular that are going basically full width of that building those are i believe 16 inches deep and so we've got you know a deep floor to begin with and then being able to kind of have a a deeper floor and not be be so squeezed with something that's so shallow that you know just wouldn't work then it was we were able to keep essentially what they were looking for Gotcha. So you kind of started talking about it a little bit, but the gravity system of the building, are these cantilevered elements? Are they the only steel elements and then infill wood framing or how does the gravity system work or what is it composed of? The other two wings of the building are are very standard wood framing. We've got the engineered TJI joists that are running, again, basically clear spanning over the full width of, of each of the wings. And that's nice to just be able to have two solid bearing lines along along each wall and then kind of span everything over there. And then any partitions or, or any pieces that the architect wants in between there are just non-bearing walls that they've got the flexibility to shift around. And, you know, especially during early phases of design where they want to tweak a closet or a bathroom or something, it's, yeah, like that open space was nice for them. And then, yeah, the cantilever side, there's the, as far as the gravity framing goes, it is essentially those, you know, those four big steel beams that are cantilevering out and then the steel columns between those. And then perpendicular to those, we've got a couple steel moment frames for, for the lateral system. But as far as the gravity goes, it's essentially those big steel beams and then all the infill framing is, is wood framed. Gotcha. How far down do you have to go for your foundations? Do you have a basement for this one? I can't remember. Is there a basement? There's not a basement, no. Okay. It's spread footings up at the upper portion of the of the building, the, the garage wing and the other main wing. And then... From that point, we've got a, a big concrete retaining wall that drops off, and that that's kind of where you get to that portion where you have the 
the pass through for the cars to drive and then then that elevator shaft as well that's just on a on a mat there okay nothing extreme as far as any sort of drilled piers or anything like that it's it's mostly once you get down to the foundation again there's some some bulk to those retaining walls but it pretty much gets simplified once we got to the soil level okay so this is kind of maybe an elementary question for you but so I live in Iowa, so our frost depth is 42 inches. So all of our foundation elements have to go down to frost depth. They're 42 inches. So for you, for that upper level, how far down do you have to go with your footings? It's not too deep. We're very fortunate. I mean, this is Southern California. And to answer your question, we're only going down foot and a half to two feet for most of those. Okay. The frost depth is essentially zero. More of footing depth or, you know, needing piers or some sort of deep foundation element is more driven by shrink swell or, you know, the soil that we've got there. So again, fortunate that we're actually in, in a good a good area. We're up at the top of a hill, not like on a hillside for most of the of the main building. So it's fairly simple as far as we get to the foundation level. It's been cooling down here lately and Hearing you mentioned the the freezing in, in Iowa, then I'm just thankful that it's like 58 degrees out here today. So. <laughs> <laughs> My kids got out of school today because it is sleeting and now it is snowing out. So <laughs> the weather is inclement. So they had school canceled. So, yeah. <laughs> Not the issue we're dealing with over here right now. <laughs> well, and like sometimes I think with the fact that we get to go down 42 inches for frost steps, it gives us some flexibility, I guess, as far as like spreading out our load, I guess, and then also anchoring for uplift that, you know, there's things that I think when you don't have that, more things that you have to check or maybe not as much cushion for some of those things. Yeah, yeah. When you've got that as a starting point, you find the benefit where you can at least, yeah. Yes, exactly. So you kind of talked about it a little bit, but the lateral system. So you said you have some moment frames that are probably going transverse of the cantilever. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, okay. So yeah, so that wing is kind of its own system where the other areas are are pretty standard plywood shear walls and it's all wood frame studs and, and joists for most of the building. Yeah. Plywood shear walls elsewhere. And then this has, as we get out there, we've got two transverse steel moment frames that are just made out of HSS tubes. Yeah, so that's where it's very much working in tandem with that gravity system where we've got, you know, we've got these beefy members, you know, then we're, we're landing those steel frames on those as well. And in the floor, we've got some some four by four HSS tubes that are crisscrossing diagonally. We've got plywood on the floor as well, but we've got some extra depth where the steel beams are deeper than those than those wood floor joists. And so we actually just are running steel tubes directly underneath the bottom of the floor joists. And then that just gives a little more, a little more rigidity for, for that out of plane. Yeah. Cause that's kind of the, the tricky part is with, with cantilevers, you know, we've got a, a cantilever in both directions essentially. And so you've got the vertical load and the lateral load and a lot of glass on there. So we're trying to make sure that it's, it's very stiff in both directions. Sure. And you're using the strong direction of the steel in a vertical direction or for gravity loads. So then for lateral loads, you're probably in the weak direction of your support members or your cantilevered members, correct? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So then the tubing is helping with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what did you do at the end of this cantilever to kind of anchor it down? Because did you have uplift at the end of it that you had to deal with? 
at the backspan portion. The backspan of it, sorry. Yes. So yes and no. There's very, very little, but we've got several because we've got, you know, multiple steel columns along there. It's kind of able to distribute it out there. But like I said, that cantilever is 26 feet or so. And then the support point at the elevator is, you know, then has another 15 to 20 feet or so before we get to the slab on grade portion. So if you're just looking at it as those two support points as a pin pin, then yeah, that backspan has a lot more uplift. But the steel beams that we've got at the roof are actually continuing, you know, beyond that even because they're picking up that portion of the roof is actually a, a roof deck. And again, has a lot of glass windows and doorways along that. So we, we've got a couple more columns back there. So it's, you know, it's not just kind of hinging on that one point. We've got sort of a redundant fixed pin cantilever back there. So there's a few different ones. And I guess as far as your question, getting back to that, there are some, some thickened portions of the footing there. We've also got like that kind of bulkhead where we've got the retaining wall where a lot of that initial uplift is is happening. And so that's pulling double duty as as a retaining wall and a a real big hunk of concrete to anchor our our HSS columns into. Yeah, that's awesome. And that probably gives you some vertical because that retaining wall has more than two feet, I guess. So you've got quite a bit (laughs) of soil on the backside of that to kind of hold it down too, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I, I don't know, I'd say nine or 10 foot drop or something down to that space. So yeah, it's a, it ends up being a pretty husky retaining wall there. Yeah. As you're talking through this project and then also looking at the plans, one thing that comes to mind is how important knowing what civil is doing and knowing what the grading is around the building. Cause I feel like this could be like a very straightforward project if it was a flat site, but the fact that it's not a flat site is where all of the complexity comes in. So, (laughs) and I think sometimes when we're designing in an office and if we don't see the site, like without that information, that grading information from civil, you don't really know that. So I guess it's just driving home the need for a great civil engineer and someone that is out there doing grading and doing kind of a grading plan with point elevations or spot elevations. Yeah, I had seen, you know, all these renderings of the of the project from the architect, which are, you know, what it's going to look like when it's finished and it's got pavers on the, the driveway and all the site work is is done. I mean, just like I'm excited about it. And that's, you know, like the, the rendering of the future projection. And then, you know, I'd been looking at those for so long that I was looking at just the actual blank site and the just kind of like the shrubs on a hillside that it's that's <laughs> currently there. And I was looking at that portion and it's exactly what you're saying. Whereas I kind of had almost gotten ahead of myself looking at like, all right, this is what it's going to look like. You know, our structure is going to go here and there's so much kind of background product that needs to be in place first. And, and I think that kind of the point you're making about having a good civil, having, I think just across the board, when you work with good people and when you work with a good project team, it can make such a huge difference, not just in the, you know, in the quality of the work and the, I guess, kind of joy that you you feel throughout the process of, you know, working on something and putting something together productively, but also for the owner, you know, I think that ends up showing up for them in the, you know, in the overall cost. And it just kind of goes to show the, the collaborative nature of success in our industry is it's pretty variable and, and you obviously have the highs and the lows in, in projects where you work with good teams and others where there's some sticking points or miscommunications and that sort of thing. And it's, yeah, it's just a, it's a world of difference. So we've been fortunate for 
for this one that we've been working with a really good architectural group and and they've kind of taken care of a lot of that that civil stuff and all the the site surveys and that sort of thing are, are just really well done awesome that's great so you talked about collaboration a little bit and i know both of us you work remotely as well though so and this i know now that's how a lot of people are working but <laughs> i know it's something that you're passionate about as far as working from home or working remotely, but still having a collaborative environment with not only your coworkers, but the design team as well. What are some things that you have done to kind of foster that collaboration? Like you said, we're fully remote. Most of our team is around the Bay Area and, you know, within probably an hour of each other. But we've got that flexibility to not need to commute in every day. And, you know, there's a lot of Google Meet, just quick, like three minute hey, can you jump on for a second? I want to screen share and show you this. And and like that piece of things has made things feel, you know, not so isolated. Like it doesn't feel like you're kind of stuck in your own room and, and don't have any anybody to lean on. Like, I think that's something that we, we do really well. And then on top of that, we try to get together once every couple of weeks to do a, a co-work space and have the members of the team in there. So, I mean, we're, we're a small office. We've got nine or 10 engineers and like I said, everybody's everybody's fairly close to one another, but it almost makes you appreciate more those those moments that you're together where, you know, like I, I definitely look forward to those biweekly meetups where we spend a few hours just even if you're not working on the same projects with each other that, yeah, you kind of just appreciate getting to see people and and getting to put your heads together on on different things. But also, yeah, having the flexibility where, you know, I could take a, a vacation to Hawaii for a week and do some work from there and just having the flexibility to basically work around the world and have that option. And and David Yadigar, our principal, does a, a really good job of fostering that kind of sense of, of freedom and independence and responsibility at the same time, you know, where you're you're able to get things done, but also live your life and experience the world as well. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you have that kind of intentional co-working day, even if you're not working on the same projects, because sometimes I think when you're just in your home office for too long (laughs) or working independently for too long, you really miss that human connection. So yeah, like you said, like even if it's not the same project that you're working on, at least you have the feel of (laughs) co-workers. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, maybe it's, you know, the fact that we're not in the same space every day, but those times when we are, like I, I definitely really appreciate the team that we've got and just it's a good group to work with and I think as engineers you know there's the old joke of what's the difference between an introverted and extroverted engineer and the extroverted engineer will stare at your shoes when you talk to them and I think that's like (laughs) I appreciate the the human connection of you know we kind of can tend to to veer towards number crunchers and when you get those moments for those human connections it's it's really rewarding. Yeah. Well, and like, to your point, even introverts can be social. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm an introvert, but I love to talk to people. So I love to look at other people's shoes. (laughs) Yeah, I think having the, you know, having the option for that balance is, you know, there's days when I want to just put my head down and work on drawings and work on spreadsheets or something. But then there's other days where you need to kind of get outside of yourself a little bit too. Exactly. Yep. It's good to be efficient, but it's also good to be re-energized with other people. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. Okay. So this project is very unique and challenging. 
And I feel like, is that kind of kind of your sweet spot then as far as like project types? Our office does a pretty wide range of, you know, we do, we do residential, we do single family, we do, you know, apartment buildings and, and then we do, you know, more commercial restaurants, retail, what have you. And I think that that's something that I like about our firm size and our niche in the industry is, is that there's not really the the pigeonholing and, you know, I get to, I get to work on a pretty wide variety of projects, but when you're working on residential projects, something that makes it really exciting is that that might be the one construction project that the homeowner is involved with in their life. You know, it's like they're very, very excited about that. And there's there's pros and cons where being efficient with that excitement and, you know, working through and, and having also a good architect that is not, you know, bouncing around from idea to idea to idea because, you know, there's just like this such a blank slate. But I think that working on that scope or that scale of project with an owner who's super excited about it is kind of energizing for me. And then within that though, a lot of those, this is also though has a lot of elements of, you know, the more more challenging or unique or kind of like bigger scale design projects with that cantilever and with the the mixture of steel, wood, concrete, you know, you've got a few different design materials in there. So yeah, I think that this one is kind of right in that in that sweet spot of offering a lot of different things to, to keep things exciting, but also, yeah, small enough that it kind of feels human and it's not like a, a skyscraper where you're you're stuck working on bolted connections for six months or something you know yes link beams at the elevator core <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah no I love that and I also feel like this project like you know a lot of times if it's a ranch home that's very simple the contractor is able to just go to the IRC the International Residential Code, and just do prescriptive design. So look at a chart and pull out certain things. Whereas this one is unique and atypical, and it doesn't fit in that framework of prescribed information. So it needs that custom approach. Yeah, exactly. My grandpa was a contractor. And, you know, whenever I tell him we're working on stuff, he's just kind of like, he's kind of like, bah, engineer, you know, where he's like, Oh, I could have built that. I didn't need an engineer for that, you know? <laughs> and yeah, it's definitely nice to be needed. <laughs> yeah. And I think there are different projects, right? Like sometimes we're not needed and we don't really want to be a part of those projects because we're not bringing a service to the project. But for this one, you're definitely bringing a service to the project. Yeah. So what's the most unexpected thing that came up during design? This is not a, a knock on anybody or anything. I just, I think that it was... It was unexpected just how well we meshed as far as, you know, Martis and Kirill and I have the kind of the architecture team that I'm working with. It was very much a surprise. Like they've been awesome as far as kind of seeing things from both sides, you know, and seeing things from the the creative architectural side and also the the practical, realistic and economical side of what's what's feasible for getting built and getting the best product for the owner. And so for better or worse to kind of like just our industry in general, that was a, a very pleasant surprise that it was just, it's all been very smooth and, and has been a, a real joy working with them. That's awesome. That means you got to keep the design team together for the next <laughs> project, right? <laughs> yeah. Just album after album, the band's going to keep pumping out the hits. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. We will get into that in a little bit. So what would you say is like the most fascinating thing about the Eagle's Nest project? Again, like a lot of this is it's not built yet. It's still approaching the construction phase, but it's just, I think it's going to be a beautiful 
spot, like the site on the on the hill. You know, Temecula is a beautiful a beautiful town, beautiful area with you know a lot of wine country around, and just you know a lot of projects. We you know we get the drawings done, we get things out the door, and it's like you know all right, that's going to be in construction. You know, at some point, and with this one, it's like. I'm actively monitoring and, you know, excited for that to get built. And I just think it's going to be a, a very cool spot. So, yeah, I think it's just a exciting structure, exciting site. And I think it's going to be really nice. Love it. So as you're talking, Gray, something that comes to mind is some of our projects that we work on are like reproductions of artwork that, you know, is maybe has a slight modification, but it's just reproduced multiple times. Whereas this one is very much a custom piece of art, right? But building size. So I can see how you would be excited about that. <laughs> yeah. There's actually like a eagle's nest feature at the roof deck where there's a hot tub at the at the roof level that's going to be kind of just overhanging the main rectangle of the of the structure. And and then that obviously has a, a structural piece where we support that, but then Beyond that, there's all a little architectural flourish where they've got some pieces that actually kind of simulate a think think like the the Beijing Olympics uh-huh. structure like that sort of look. Obviously, not nearly as big, but yeah, that kind of like nest look. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, maybe I should have mentioned that, but that's a, again very much an, an architectural flourish. But the eagle look, the nest look is it's a it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, so when I was doing my research, I believe you have a band. Is this correct? (laughs) (laughs) It's true, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, I am going to ask you what the theme song of The Eagle's Nest would be. And you can feel free to use an independent one of your original songs if you would like. Maybe you (laughs) wrote a song for this building, but I am just going to ask you what would the theme song for The Eagle's Nest be? (laughs) <laughs> I have not written a song for Eagle's Nest directly with the band. That's true. But I'm actually surprised. I, I'm impressed also by your research because <laughs> we're a very small band. But a quick funny story on that. Actually, the band is called We Love Jess. And it's because my friend and I, who you know, I make the music with, we were both dating girls named Jess when we started making music together. <laughs> and then uh, he ended up marrying his Jess and I, I did not marry mine. But then I uh, dated for a bit and then actually back with another Jess now. So it's it's just, it was all meant to be. <laughs> I feel like you, like, I can only date you if your name is Jess. <laughs> it was not a strict requirement, but very much a coincidence. Love it. Meant to be, like you said. <laughs> yeah. So as far as a theme song, I will choose from bands a lot more accomplished and I think impressive than than ours. But I want to say Fly Like an Eagle by Steve Miller Band, but I feel like that's a little too on the nose. You know, that's just... (laughs) Okay, yep. But I would want to choose something that's very much, I think, just like the the view and the kind of like the the beauty of the project. I would say, actually, I'm going to go with Looking Out My Back Door by uh, Creedence Clearwater because I think that that's what that project screams to me is that big cantilever where you're looking out the back of the building and you've got just kind of the the whole world. I feel like it's just a an open sunny day that you're that you're looking out the window. Yes, I love that. The CCR song, I feel like that is like kind of a out in nature and relaxed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's the vibe of that song. I love how each building, home or commercial whatever it is, each building has its own personality that draws out some sort of music. So, I love that. <laughs> so, 
how do you recharge? I kind of tweaked my knee recently, so I'm actually in this process of, of finding finding different ways because I've got a lot of hobbies and a lot of lots of time it's it's staying active with you know pickup basketball, soccer, just anything to be out and moving around. I you know I live walking distance from a 24-hour fitness and a, a Chick-fil-A, so I'm kind of always like there's that fork in the road where I have a choice, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of activity, a lot of exercise, but yeah, lately I've been kind of lounging around the house with, with ice on my knee. So doing a lot of, a lot of reading and playing some music with the band. I just try to try to keep myself busy. And I want to say this not sounding braggy or anything, but I think that when I first started as an engineer, it was very much work, you know, and then it was like, I'm working and then, you know, and I would I would ride BART, which is the, you know, like the subway system here in and out of San Francisco. And, you know, all that commute time just kind of like would get home at the end of the day and would be very much burnt out. And now I think, you know, part of that is that time has been recaptured without a commute. But also I think that, you know, as I've gotten more knowledgeable and more comfortable, you know, feeling like I, I know somewhat what I'm doing on different projects and stuff that it's just like, it almost becomes like a mindset adjustment now of now it's like, doing puzzles or, or something like that, you know, that it's like, there's still obviously, you know, deadlines and, and stressors from work. But I think that it's, I guess, less, less draining and more like, you know, enjoyable to actually think through the process and think through those, those projects of engineering. So again, I would say I've got a lot of interest outside of work that, that recharge me, but I also think that the work day is, is less draining than it used to be, which I think is a positive trajectory. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I often think of it as like sometimes when we first start our career, it's like we're in it for the sprint because we think we need the output of the sprint. Like we have to output like as much as we can. And then you quickly realize that you get burnt out when you do that. And so then you have to like adjust the mindset to the marathon. <laughs> and in the end, you're actually able to output better quality and more efficiently because you're not going so fast and so hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think too that when you're starting out, you kind of don't have that baseline for self-worth almost in the in the workplace because mm -hmm. you you work on a project, you work on a second project. You kind of have just like such a limited backlog of things that you can look at and say, you know, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. You know, I've I've done stuff like this before. So everything everything's new and then, you know, whoever is supervising you or, you know, maybe you get some some red marks on a drawing. And again, when you don't kind of know your value yet, you, you take every, you know, every drop of red ink as like, oh, I messed this up. I messed this up. And then as you go on, you know, there's still obviously always at any point in your career, there's going to be things that you have to learn or that you make mistakes on or need to bounce ideas off other people. But I think, again, like as you kind of develop that comfort of, all right, I know what I'm doing and I, I know the process and maybe you need somebody to, to bounce things off of, but you're not hanging on every every word or every every markup so yeah I think that's mm -hmm. kind of just like different phases of, of career kind of piece too yeah I love that you say that because I also feel like whatever you value of yourself as a professional is directly related to what your clients see and value of you like we get to establish that right and then whatever the client will follow suit <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely
All right. Well, Ray, this has been amazing and great. I can't wait to see this project come together. I will be checking it out virtually just to see everything come together. So I think it's going to look awesome. And I really appreciated this conversation and sitting down and talking about this and kind of delving into the structural engineering side of things a little bit too. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I was a little nervous coming in, but you did a great job facilitating. And yeah, I really enjoyed this. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.